Well, you haven't heard this in a while. Turn to the book of John. During our time in the Gospel of John, we've seen that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so it should be no surprise that this very reality, in fact, this very passage is one of the passages that is most under attack by Satan himself via false churches, specifically cults. The Jehovah's Witness cult has even gone so far as to change the Greek text so as to indicate that Jesus was a God. Encourage you when they visit your home, and they will, to take them to Hebrews 1.8, and that kind of ends the conversation where God the Father calls God the Son God. There are other passages that should end the conversation, but there's a lot of deception going on by those who are moved by Satan himself really to destroy this doctrine of the deity of Jesus. John goes on to say, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And yet, They will argue vehemently that somehow he who is the maker of all things is himself one of the made things. It seems preposterous, not only to you and me, but even to unbelievers who read this. Is it not crystal clear even to the unbelieving, unregenerate mind that what John is saying is that Jesus is the creator? This is, of course, as you know, not the only passage that speaks of Jesus' deity. So if you were to go to our website, you'd see a number of thematic titles. I'd encourage you to do that. If you haven't done this in a while, it'd be a good way to review. I'm going to review this morning. That's kind of what this is going to be. But I would encourage you to go to our website and look at the titles. You'll see, uh, and if you don't know how to do that, it's pretty easy. You just click on categories and, and click on Gospel of John. And what that will do for you then is just list the, the messages out of this Gospel of John series. It's the only thing it'll show. It's, it's two pages. I think there are some 50 messages or so at this point. So you click on the one. It starts with the intro to John, then John 1, 1 to 5, and so on, all the way up through the end of John 8, and we've titled every one of those messages with uh, the interest of emphasizing the central reality of the book of John, which is Jesus. And so all those titles start with the name Jesus. We're going to walk through those this morning. We've already said that Jesus is God. That was the title of the first message after our introduction into the book of John Jesus is God. Our second message was titled, Jesus is the Light of the World, from chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. The true light, John says, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this speaks of the reality that the person upon whom the light of Jesus, the light that is Jesus, is shed upon is the person who understands this truth to be true. 
that salvation is of God. It's not of man. It's not by blood. It's not by flesh. It's not of man. It is of God. And so those who have received him have done so, yes, volitionally, but they've been granted that volition. It's not a work of man. It's very clear. So the point here, what John is saying about Jesus regarding Jesus being the light of the world is that the only people who can understand and receive that are those upon whom this light has been cast. He opens their eyes. He opens their ears. He opens their minds. He enables the person to understand and believe this truth that salvation is of the Lord and only of the Lord, justification by faith alone. A dead man does not make himself Alive, A baby does not create himself and make himself to be born. It's the light of the world cast upon dead men, bringing them to new life. Jesus is the God-man. John 1, this is message 3, John 1, 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, God, who displays himself as the Word. God, in eternity past, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who is God, robed himself in humanity, took on human weakness, and yet did not sin, and yet did not stop being God in any sense of the word. He is the God-man. He took on flesh. Next, John tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and this would have been absolutely not uncertain in the minds of Jewish listeners who were steeped in their own misunderstanding, but at least an awareness of the sacrificial system. They would have understood enough about the sacrificial system to know that when you call someone a Lamb of God, you're referring to them as a sacrificial entity, one by whom a vicarious death is given for others. So the sacrificial system foreshadowed. And so here, after 400 years of silence from God, we are in a period now of silence from God. They were in a 400-year period of silence from God. And this Old Testament prophet, John, who eats locusts and honey and wears a leather belt and a gunny sack, steps onto the scene and he says, behold, your sacrificial system's been fulfilled. Pay attention the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he, John says, of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He's not speaking in an earthly chronology because John was conceived before Jesus, six months prior. That's not what he's talking about talking about his deity in eternity past. Well, next, we spoke of Jesus, the disciple-maker, in John 1. He called Simon Peter and John and Peter's brother Andrew and then Philip and Nathaniel. And in doing so, he then paved the way for himself to be shown to be the miracle worker. So he takes them into this scene where, as far as they know, he's a good man, but they're unaware of any ability he might have to do anything miraculous, anything supernatural. And so in chapter 2, he performs his first sign, the Bible tells us. And you may have seen these mystical movies and even books about Jesus that speak of 
other gospels. You've heard of these other gospels that speak of Jesus doing miracles as a child. Well, that's a lie. John tells us this was his first sign. Later, we see what's called his second sign. He didn't do miracles for 30 years. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, you see a smattering of miracles. The Bible is not full of miracles until you get to this age. And this is what inaugurates Jesus' miraculous ministry, this turning water into wine. And by the way, the sweetest, purest, most amazing wine ever known to mankind, either before or since. Then we see Jesus, the cleanser of his father's house. By the way, this is not God's house. I hope you know that. This is a building. Uh, it's a warehouse uh, turned into a, <laughs> a, uh, an assembly hall. I wouldn't recommend it now that we've done it a couple times. But uh, praise God for what he's blessed us with, and we're very, very thankful. But it's a big box that we worship in. That's all it is. Not like the temple, not like the tabernacle, which were dwelling places of the Lord. What's the dwelling place of the Lord now? It's you. It's you. Jesus is the tabernacle, and you are the ultimate tabernacle in which he resides. The Spirit of Christ in you. We don't need a temple. You can worship anywhere. See that in John 4. We'll get to that in a bit, I think. But Jesus cleanses the temple because it is the house of God. It's a place where money changing was not to take place, especially money changing that would mock the purpose of the temple, which was to inhabit, uh, for the Lord to inhabit the praise of his people. The text tells us the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so what's happening is this miraculous work is being established in people's hearts. He grants the ability to believe, and then people believe. Not everybody does, right? He grants belief in a particular way. When he grants that belief, people irresistibly believe. So it's here where he did not entrust himself to some, to them, the text says, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And just when you think we're overemphasizing God's sovereignty, bang, there's man's responsibility. So nobody gets off the hook, especially those who refute man's responsibility by saying, well, if God's sovereign, then what point is it? Well, this is the point. He knew man's heart. So he did not entrust himself to those who had a deceptive heart. So there was no connection. The biblical term is communion. There's no relationship. He does not brother himself to those whose hearts are full of deception. He does not save those who come in a lack of humility. We saw that in Matthew, right, the last few weeks. So Jesus next, the next message dealt with Jesus unmasking a well-polished hypocrite. We spent a lot of time in this text. He unveils the falsehood, the hypocrisy, the Phariseeism of a well-polished 
hypocrite in John 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is clearly establishing the reality that you cannot do anything to be saved. It comes like the wind out of nowhere. You don't know its origin. You do not understand how it works. You are totally unable, totally depraved, completely unequipped to bring yourself to him like you are unable to do so with the wind. The wind arrives on its own. And that clearly illustrates how salvation works. This is not the hopeless end of the conversation. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Don't you want to say that to the person who continues to reject God's sovereignty in salvation? Have you been exposed to these things this long, and you still don't understand them? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I, and this is really where Jesus drops it down in the clearest and really most penetrating and convicting way. It's really an indictment on Nicodemus's wooden-headedness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... In other words, if I give you these clear illustrations of this truth and you still reject it, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If you choose to dismiss and pretend you don't understand the illustration, how will you ever understand that which the illustration illustrates? And this is how it often works with those who hard-heartedly reject the truth of the character of God. The next message we called Jesus, God's love gift to a hateful world. And this is rooted in that famous passage, John 3, 16, which is not only perhaps um, used in maybe not so much of a helpful way in the end zone of a football field on a national uh, televised football game. Not that that's wrong or bad or anything like that. I'm just not sure how helpful it is. Maybe it is. But it unfortunately is often twisted, particularly the term cosmos. Jesus grants, Jesus is granted as the Father's gift to a hateful world such that who, whoever believes in him would in fact receive eternal life. This does not mean that every single person in the world receives eternal life. Otherwise, universally speaking, everyone would in fact be saved. And verse 17 in John 3 clears that up for us. So let's read them together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
if he was talking about every single person in the world, then every single person in the world would be saved by him. That's not what he's talking about. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Again, bang, man's responsibility equally spoken of with the same fervor as God's sovereignty. So nobody's off the hook. Nobody. When man rejects Christ as plainly displayed in his lack of love for Christ, in his lack of love for the church, he is at fault. Whoever believes will not be condemned. Then in John 3, Jesus, the bridegroom, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him and they're all up in arms. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You're looking at God. You're watching the God man. So this is okay. In fact, this is good. Oh, in fact, this is why I came. John goes on to say, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Listen, I was a, I was a, a groomsman 13 times. <laughs> I know what it's like to not be the big deal. Uh, and this is what John is pointing to. I'm, I'm not the groom. I'm not the husband. I'm not the focal point here. I'm a messenger. You know what he said from the beginning. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm a voice that paves the way for the groom, the husband of the church, to be on display. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete he must increase, but I must decrease. Let me just tell you that for every wedding I was ever in, it was nothing but sheer joy for me to watch my friend walk the aisle and become one flesh with that dear soul that he had set his eyes on. And that's what John is so thrilled with. Men, take your eyes off of me and put them on the groom. I'm just... I'm just here to make sure his tux isn't wrinkled. I, I'm just a servant. I'm just the friend. I'm a groomsman. I play a role for a while, and then I go away. I'm here to be faithful, fruitful, and forgotten. I want to simply do what I've been called to do. He is the groom. He's the bridegroom. And then in chapter 4, Jesus, the Messiah, takes a wayward woman with an illicit, sexually deviant past life and an even worse present life where she's been married five times but currently lives with a man, not her husband, and he transforms her into a true worshiper. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Stop there for a moment. You, know, you, you really need to understand, and I think you do, that this concept of worshiping in spirit and truth is to mean it and to do it biblically. 
to worship in spirit is to worship from the depths of your soul, from your heart. You want to do it. You do it wholeheartedly. We saw this idea in Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 18 in the last few weeks that there is a wholehearted devotion to little ones. The command is to not despise little ones. He's speaking there not of biological children, but spiritual children. We said that the one who is not interested in discipling younger believers is abandoning, really rejecting Jesus' basic command. Do not despise little ones. And he illustrates the severity of that condition by saying it would be better for you if you cut off your hand than for your whole body to go to hell. Better to pluck out the eye than for your whole body to go to hell. But here, this woman who's been married five times and is living with a man who's not her husband who has this sexually illicit past and and a worse present, Jesus changes her. He changes her. He regenerates her in the moment. He makes her a worshiper. He explains that the day is coming where those whom God is looking for who worship in spirit and in truth will do so. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him, Jesus says. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to you, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And as impossible as it was for the unregenerate to believe this, it was certain that she would believe it. This is the way these deeper truths go. God grants the ability to believe the deeper truths only to believers. This is why he speaks in parables. You see people's eyes cross when we start talking with parables because they don't get the illustration. They don't get the truth behind the illustration. I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. What does she do? Well, as you know, him here saying, he's saying, I'm the Messiah. And then he further transforms this newly worshiping, brand new little one, this baby, brand new believer into a passionate, outspoken evangelist. She says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. How's that? How's that? for an indictment on folks who've been in the Lord for a number of years who utterly and completely reject the clear and true and obvious accusations about their sin. Here this brand new believing woman abandons all pride and says, you know what, all the accusations he made, they're true. Let's just be honest about this. This is what it takes for someone to actually display that they are regenerate so that others might be made regenerate through their Jesus-saturated ministry. Come, see a man who talked about my sin. I got a card from a dear friend this week saying, thank you for your faithfulness to address my sin. Thank you. See, there should be so much more of that going on in the body of Christ, the way it happens here at this well. Jesus spoke the truth in love. And it didn't take a six-month friendship for it to happen. Usually it does, and that's not wrong. 
But here he spoke truth with love, and it penetrated her heart. He saved her, and immediately she proves to be a believer who is far more committed to her soul than she is her reputation. This is really a blueprint for how Christians should respond to correction when their sin is being addressed. They went out of the town, were coming to him, the those from Sychar. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. He did a little mini gospel conference right there in Sychar because they wanted him to preach. They wanted to hear truth. They didn't run from truth. They didn't despise the truth. They didn't roll their eyes at the truth. They didn't go to sleep when truth was being preached. They begged him to stay, and he did. Many more believed because of his word. This is evangelism. This is basic Christianity. People are changed by God. They don't pretend to be changed and want everybody, oh, of course I'm a Christian. Look at all the stuff I've done. There's none of that. She had nothing to boast over, and she knew it. Instead, she talked about the fact that he exposed her totally depraved condition. He exposed it, and they wanted, she wanted them to experience that same pride-destroying exposure. They said to the woman, listen to this, after they many believed in the word because of the word, or they believe in him because of the word, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. Oh, well, thanks a lot. How do, if you got saved under Paul Washer's ministry because he's preaching somewhere to you know, thousands of people and uh, you're thankful and then you sit under sound teaching in a local church and you send Paul Washer an email and say, I don't need you anymore. Thank you so much. But that's, that's exactly what's happening here. It's not an insult. It's not an insult. The point is that we get it. We don't need your testimony in and of itself any longer. Who does, though? Think of it in our era. Who does need this kind of testimony? It's the person who runs from correction. It's the person who does not want to walk away from a confrontation and say, praise God, that person loved me enough to tell me everything that's obviously true about me. Some of the things I don't quite get yet, but I'm willing. The person says, well, I don't, I don't see that about myself. I think I'm doing pretty well. She didn't do that. Therefore, she is evangelistically useful, but the person of the other extreme is evangelistically useless because he or she only wants to be highly thought of. So you see this drastic contrast. Praise God for this text. Amen? I mean, what a tremendous picture for us of what evangelism really looks like. Now listen, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. He opened our ears too. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. He's here. The one we've waited for. The one we longed for. So next, our next message was titled, Jesus is the Savior of the World. While he would not save the whole world, he would save every person throughout the world he intended to save, all the elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He would save all his sheep 
all his people as prophesied in Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. God would shed his blood for the church. Acts 20, verse 28. Next in John 4, Jesus heals a boy and saves his family. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that the father knew what that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he, he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Jesus compassionately saves a little boy at the behest of a father's pleading. My little boy is on the brink of death. Will you save him? And he does. I don't know about you, but I've prayed that prayer a number of times. Our first three children each spent a week in the hospital due to respiratory problems. And you don't know how that's going to end. You don't know. So Kimberly and I grew in our deepening understanding of God's sovereign work, even as we will eventually see in John 9. Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sin? Well, that's silly. His parents sinned. No, he was born so that the works of God might be on display. He was born blind. God caused the blindness. He was born blind, not because of his sin, not because of his parents' sin, so that God's glory would be on display. We've seen this over the last, you know, since November, since Thanksgiving with little Jack Martin. It makes no sense that this baby is alive. The way things worked out, this micro NICU unit at Loma Linda Hospital that just happened to be down the road from Hemet, where John and Lisa and Ella and Rosie were spending Thanksgiving with his parents. God takes a 21-week-old baby born prematurely. You know his due date's still not here? Little Jack, still not here. It's early March. Weighs five pounds, they told me yesterday. It's a big deal. I remember when Jack's weighed five pounds. You know, and we were scared for him as well. You know, they've pleaded, the Martins have pleaded. You've pleaded for your children. I've pleaded for my children. This governmental officer pleaded for his son, and Jesus saved him. And the man couldn't do anything but be waylaid by the miraculous reality of this compassionate Savior who would do that for him who didn't deserve it. He didn't, you know, he didn't walk away from that saying, well, it's a good thing I'm a government official. Nothing about him, but everything about faith. Completely and entirely focused upon Jesus and who he is and what he could do. That was it. That was it. Jesus, the Savior of the world, saves a little boy, and then he spiritually saves his, entirely, his entire family. And the next, the controversy of the Sabbath. We called this message, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And the next message was, does he break the Sabbath? 
does he break the Sabbath? He healed a man on the Sabbath. Was it not a violation of the Sabbath to work on the Sabbath? Well, according to the Pharisees, it was. So he asked them, uh, sorry, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You ever know somebody who gets all wound up in secondary details? That's a legalist. Maybe it's you. Get wound up in secondary details so much that you miss the point of the passage of God's word. You ever get upset because I don't wear a tie? Be honest. Some people do. Do you know that? The Pharisees intentionally focused on the letter of the law. And so they missed the spirit of the law. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He does what he wants. That was kind of the ultimate message. It's like, you know, is it an oversimplification to say that the theme, the purpose, the point of the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins? It sounds too simple. No, that's the point. That's the point of the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. And here it's, it's, quite, it's quite simple. Jesus does what he wants. That's the point of the passage on the Sabbath. Jesus created the Sabbath. He's Lord over the Sabbath. It had a specific purpose. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, and he came not to abolish the law, right? He didn't come to break the law to say, hey, I'm above the law. That was not the idea. I made the law, therefore I can break it. That's not what happened. He fulfilled the law. You know this. For you to fulfill the law is to what? Remember from Galatians? For you and I to fulfill the law is to love our neighbor. I see a few of you mouthing it. Say it together. To fulfill the law of Christ is to love our neighbor. He didn't come to violate the law. You don't want to violate the law, do you? You know, when your Sabbatarian friend comes to you, maybe a good, faithful Christian, and wants you to think that you're wrong because you, not because you don't worship on Saturday, that's a whole different issue, that's the Adventist cult, but a Sabbatarian who worships on Sunday but wants you to think that Sunday is the new Saturday, you know, it's not wrong to say chapter and verse. It's not wrong to say that, as long as you can, as long as you can do it with the right spirit. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath rest. The earthly Sabbath rest was a foreshadowing of the ultimate Sabbath, with, uh, which will be our perfect rest in heaven, worshiping him. The Jews missed the point, as always. They embraced the letter of the law while avoiding the spirit of the law. So yes, he broke their man-made construct of the Sabbath, but he fulfilled his own ordained purpose for the Sabbath. And when he healed the man, he exposed their legalistic, pharisaical view of the law and their inability to comprehend the law because of their hardness of heart. 
Listen to Paul break it down in Colossians 3.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He is the substance. It belongs to him. So today, you and I don't gather to commemorate the Sabbath. Why do we gather? To celebrate what? Resurrection, which happened on what day? Sunday, not what? We rest today in him, our Sabbath, and we will one day rest completely and perfectly in him. He exposes this distinction about the Sabbath, what is and what isn't the Sabbath, what its purpose was. He exposes this uh, distinction while healing a man whose infirmity was the result of his sin, not like John 9. Once he heals him, he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is later in chapter 8. But having healed this man, they endeavor to kill him as they would later when he declares himself very specifically and plainly to be God. Well, in chapter further in chapter 5, we see that Jesus is equal with God, united with him, and also sovereign. By declaring himself the Son of God, he speaks of his own ontological deity that he, therefore, is equal with God. He is God. Being the Son of God means you are God. If there are not other texts which the Bible is full of that display his deity, this ought to be enough to be the Son of God. It's the only place, he's the only person about which the Scripture refers to him with a definite singular article, the Son of God. Are there other sons of God? Yeah, there's Genesis 6. Are we called sons of God? Yes. But in the only instance where there is a reference to the singular Son of God, it's a reference to Jesus, and it always speaks of his pre-temporal deity. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Who has the power of life? The Father, who is God. The Son, who is God. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 5, we titled the message, Jesus and the Witness of His Deity. We said the Father's testimony of the deity of Jesus came in four sources. Four sources so that we may know that we have believed in Jesus and have eternal life. Those four sources. Number one, the Father bears witness through John the Baptist. The Father bears witness through Christ's works. The Father bears witness through Scripture. And the Father bears witness through Moses. All the work of the Father bearing witness of the Son of God and who he is through these four entities. John the Baptist the works of Jesus, the Scripture, and Moses himself. Well, next in John 6, we saw Jesus' compassion and confidence when he fed 20 to 25,000 looky-loos. 
all of them following him because of the miraculous signs. He was doing these miraculous, this miraculous transformative work, turning five barley crackers and two fish into enough food to feed them all. And according to John, they all had as much as they wanted. This wasn't a, you know, a sampling at the grocery store butcher. They all ate until they were at least full, if not overstuffed. Further in John 6, we saw that Jesus is dreadful and delightful. Dreadful meaning frightening. John 6, 16 says, The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened because he is dreadful. He is frightening. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid, displaying his delight. They were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They're three miles out, bang, on the land. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. Jesus, giver of eternal life, and we spent a lot of time in this text, chapter 6, 22 through 58, four sermons just on this concept that Jesus is the giver of eternal life. He grants eternal life. You don't take it. You don't take it. He grants it. Working off of the living illustration and the miracle of having produced so much bread, he calls himself the bread of life. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. He knows the heart of man. They were seeking him. Why? Because they saw signs. No longer are they seeking him because they saw signs. But what? Jesus says, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I'm your roving McDonald's. Do not work for the food that perishes. You know? This is an indictment on materialism. It's a precursor to Matthew 6. Do not, do not be anxious for what you will wear, what you will eat. Don't be anxious. Don't work for things, earthly things. Just a little bit of a, a window into next week in John 9. God deals with the miraculous work through the narrative work of John of Jesus doing God's works in a blind man, making him able to see. And then he goes on to speak of the works that we don't have much time to do. Some of you have been preparing for this. By the way, now you've got to do the study guide on your own. You don't get my help today. Because if we don't, we don't have much time. Soon it will be dark. It's light. The light of the world is here, but soon the light of the world will not be here, and there will be darkness, and no one will be able to work, so get busy. And so let me just throw this in, because I was going to do this from John 9. Let me just do it now. Are you busy doing the works of the Lord, or are you, are you obsessed with something worldly? Something earthly? Are you enraptured with something else such that it's clearly taken you 
from a devotion to Christ and his church. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Are you trying to get your fill of the loaves? Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? You hear that? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Well, he's already been showing it. Just pay attention. What does it come down to? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And so this is where Jesus really starts to even further unfold the reality that believing wrongly about Jesus is going to eventually reveal the fact that you believe in the wrong Jesus. Well, how will that most obviously be displayed? A disinterest in unity with the body of Christ and ultimately a disinterest in the true Christ. You believe in a man-made Christ. What must we do to be doing the works of God? It's really preposterous that they would ask such an easily, obviously answered question. Reveal the condition of their hearts by asking that. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's a work of God when you believe. So if you want to be involved in the work of God, then believe. And then give him credit for your belief. Rather than taking credit for yourself, Jesus said, that's the work of God. He grants new life. So obvious, so clear, so wonderful, so beautiful, so compassionate, so kind. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, that's his deity again, right? Where did he come from? This bread came down from heaven, which means he was in heaven. And yet people will fight tooth and nail against the deity of Jesus. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. What's the point? They're believing in a wrong Messiah. They're choosing to believe things about him that are not true. They are rejecting what he is saying about himself. Now listen, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Clear? That's who will come to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And it is at this point 
where those with a man-made theology start passionately pitting Scripture against Scripture. And the right response from you and me is a gracious, we believe it all. We believe it all. There will be those who will passionately pit man's responsibility not only against but over against God's sovereignty. We believe it all. We believe it all passionately. And as you will see almost immediately in this text, there is an evangelistic zeal that comes out of believing that reality. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. <laughs> that grumbling's still going on today, isn't it? This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Our next sermon, John 6, 59. Jesus uncovers the false disciples' traitorous heart. This is such a sad, sad event. Verse 58 says, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is how the false disciple always responds to the deeper truths of Scripture. Always. The false disciple gets tripped up by these harder truths. That's the purpose of them. That the false disciple, the false convert, would be exposed in his disbelief. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That's how the disciples responded. It's hard. They didn't say it's nonsense. They said it's hard because they acknowledged that they were little ones and they needed help and they needed teaching and they needed discipleship, which is what he was giving them. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Speaking of his deity. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That's a framer. That is a framer. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Were you born of the flesh or not? Were you born in the flesh or not? If you were born in the flesh, which you were, you were no help at all. You are no help at all in the regenerative work that God and God alone does. He doesn't say that the flesh gets in the way, the flesh is a problem, the flesh obscures it, the flesh makes it difficult, the flesh confuses people. He says the flesh is no help at all. The Spirit gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now this is really, really hard. Because what this does is it opens up the reality that those who persist in their belief and their trying to influence others to believe that they brought themselves to Christ are proving themselves to disbelieve in him. This is not to say by any means that a person who initially or even for a while thinks that he had something to do with his salvation is unsaved. We would never say that. But we would say the person who resists this obvious 
truth. Jesus says to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It is the Father that draws him. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's a staggering statement. The false disciples turned from this reality that only the Father and only the Son grant eternal life. It is not a work of man. It is a work of God, and it is a polarizing truth. It's a polarizing truth. It's a staggering truth. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now, this is a test, but not for him. He knew their hearts. It's a test for them. Where are you in this? You believe this? It's a hard truth. They've already said, Jesus, this is hard to believe. This is hard to believe, but we're with you. And so the response is from Simon Peter. Every now and then he says something good, right? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Chapter 7. Jesus' brothers are not his brothers. His earthly brothers are not his spiritual brothers. They know it. They know this. Verse 3, so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples, at least they're honest, your disciples also may see the works you're doing. Now they're getting the free meal, so they're going to follow him for a while. James will come to trust him, his half-brother. Verse 7, or verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates the true believer. Now listen, (laughs) the person who says, well, you know, the world hates me, therefore I know I'm a believer, that might not be true. The world might hate you because you're hate-worthy. Maybe you're dishonest. Maybe you've got a, a wake of people behind you because you have broken relationships because you've done nothing but prove yourself to not be trustworthy. You see, be careful to examine that. Don't give yourself the benefit of the doubt on that. The point here is that the true believer is hated by the world because he loves Christ. It's simple. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You remember he's saying this to his unbelieving biological brothers. It hates me because I tell the truth. I tell the truth. I testify about it that its works are evil. John 7, 14, Jesus commands us to judge rightly. And he goes back to the matter of the Sabbath. Get the Sabbath right, he's saying. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In other words, use your noggin. A lot of times I'll say to my kids, use your head. I don't mean that in an insulting way. I really mean God's blessed you. You're smart. 
You have the ability to think. Let's practice that. Let's really work hard to utilize the giftedness God has given us cerebrally so that we can understand what he has said to us. For the spiritual man, he understands. He appraises all things, 1 Corinthians 2 says, but the natural man rejects the things of God. He cannot understand them. Boy, he thinks he's smart, though, right? Read 1 Corinthians 1. In fact, Matthew 11 tells us he's wise and understanding. That's what Jesus says about the world. Wise and understanding in a very, very upside-down way. Worldly ways, worldly wisdom. It's false wisdom. 725, Jesus closes heaven's door. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And they were puzzled by this. Jesus had closed the door. They had committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I fear for the person who sits under sound teaching year after year after year. And I would never be one until I go to the grave. I will never be one to say that I know that about anybody, but I guarantee you it happens. The person who gets inoculated with enough truth that he is able to resist it as if he's been vaccinated against it. He thinks he's smart. And he listens to people that think they're smart. And he thinks he's smarter when he listens to them because they're saying the same nonsense he's saying rather than subjecting himself to truth. Friends, beloved, the day comes where Jesus closes the door on those people. And you and I should be frightened by that. We should be all the more willing to compassionately and lovingly communicate the truth of Christ's compassion as long as they will listen. Verse 37, Jesus is the living water that satisfies eternally. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, all the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now you might wonder if you weren't here with us, why didn't we cover 753 through 811? Listen to that message for, uh, I hope, what is a gripping understanding, a gripping expression of why the manuscripts from which this section uh, is suspect and added later. This will infuriate your KJO friends, your King James only friends, if you have any, who erroneously believe that their 1611 version, which, by the way, is not a 1611 version, uh, they want to believe that it's the original version, and it certainly is not. It's not the original English version. They get it all wrong. And so they believe that 753 through 811 is Scripture, and it's not. Next, in John 8, Jesus sheds light on the Pharisees' doom. So he said to them, again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. 8.21, Jesus judges those who reject his deity. I have spent a substantial amount of time with Bill Schlegel online dealing with his rejection of the God-man. He and a small collection of people there in Jerusalem. He lives back in the States now, and he's found another small pocket of people. This guy taught for the Master's University for over two decades. And I asked him, so it's one of two things. Either you rejected the deity of Christ all those years and you feigned belief so as to keep your job, you didn't believe it all along, 
or there was some persuasion in your heart that it was true, and now you've chosen to reject that. Either way, you've acted with a lack of integrity and a wanting to speak to the administration about it, but stay on staff and leave quietly if there were to be a departure at all. And he confessed to me that he had always questioned it. I say 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And so he feigned belief in the deity of Christ all these years. And friends, there are plenty of people, maybe even in our midst, who do that. I did that. I did that. And I grew up in a pseudo-Presbyterian church where the Trinity was taught. I had no idea why it was taught. But I sort of believed it in a kind of a mystical way, but I couldn't defend it, and I certainly didn't embrace it. How could that be true? God enables the heart of the believer to believe the miraculous reality of the ontology of the Trinity, that God is one God and three persons. He can do that. You and I cannot place him under restriction by our limited ontology. We have one nature, each of us. You don't have two natures. You have one nature. God is three persons. Jesus has two natures. He is one God, three persons. Jesus sheds light on the Pharisees' doom. When he does so, he says, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So when he speaks of his deity, he's just piling further sadness on this eternal reality. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus frees sinner from sin, John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And this is where the the false convert gets really uncomfortable. And here's this truth, because... He knows he's living a double life. He knows that. But he's pretty convinced he's got others fooled. And by the way, he doesn't. I've never met a person who was living a double life who later confessed it that it wasn't already obvious about. It's almost like dealing with a child. They have a different father. Verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So he kind of lays the groundwork to explain who their father is. He hasn't said it just yet. He didn't quite pull the trigger. But the point is God's not your father. I do the works of God the Father. You do the works of your father. Verse 37, Jesus rebukes the devil's children, we called it, and they go into a full-out brawl right here in front of everybody. 
Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, the man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. The way this happens more often today is killing with verbiage, killing with slander, killing with gossip, killing with private conversations, killing those who speak the truth. Those who hate the truth attempt to kill those who speak the truth. They attempted to literally kill him. The truth that he heard from God led to that. This is not what Abraham did. Abraham didn't do that. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, an implication that he was. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's a rhetorical question, and he answers it. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And this is where the twofold reality about that person comes into play. One, he rejects the sovereignty and the deity of Jesus. Two, he's living a double life, and he knows it. He's not nearly so willing to give up his theology of free will as he is maybe willing at some point to acknowledge that his life is a whitewashed tomb because everybody knows it. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. John 8, 48, Jesus is God eternal, and this is where we finish. This is where we left off five months ago. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? Who are you? Put it on the line, as if he hasn't already told them about a dozen times. Who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. You ever feel like saying that? Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Now, they're accusing him of being a Samaritan. This is a direct way of insulting him as their hatred of Samaritans was well known. It's racism on their part. They also accuse him of having a demon. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? This, again, is refusing to believe 
earthly things, if they can't understand the illustration, how will they understand the heavenly truth? Out of this text, if you don't keep Jesus' word, you don't know him. You don't know him if you don't keep his word. And Jesus is the God that you don't know. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And I've explained to you this before, but I'll do it again because you need to understand this when your Jehovah's Witness neighbor shows up at your door. The standard translation of the day was the Septuagint. It was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Septuagint means 70, so it was translated by 70 scribes. The Hebrew into Greek, and that was the translation that was most commonly used at the time. So when they read Exodus 3.14 of Moses' experience with God, Moses said, who am I going to tell Pharaoh is sending me? And God's response was, ego me. As far as first century Jews and Romans were concerned. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. It's yod Hey wow Hey. It reads from right to left, yod Hey wow Hey. It's transliterated as Y-H-W-H. We add the consonants. Hebrew doesn't have consonants. Make it pronounceable. So we say Yahweh. Jehovah's Witnesses insist that you say Jehovah. That's fine. It's an English transliteration of a German transliteration of a Hebrew term. That's okay. But that's what it is. It doesn't have to be Jehovah. It can be, but that's fine. It's Yahweh. It means Lord. Ultimately, it means eternal one. The root word is to exist. That's all it means. In fact, that's exactly how it's printed in the text, to exist. And so we, we see that as the existing one. Who am I to tell Pharaoh is sending me? The one who has always existed. And so you fast forward here to John 8 and verse 24 and 25. They said, who are you? I've been telling you who I am. We get to verse 58 and he says, before Abraham, by the way, whom I created, I threw that in. Before Abraham existed, ego me. The Greek translation of the Hebrew text. I am. And this is the one about whom John refers when he gives us this theme text in John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And next week, we'll see that this blind man who was born blind so that the works of God would be worked in him believes. Father, we thank you for the gift of belief. Thank you that though our time has been long, it has seemed short. We pray that you might help us to resaturate ourselves with this immense truth that ultimately God took on flesh that he might redeem man unto you. We pray that our time remaining this morning would be the wholehearted, full reflection of this command that we are to worship in spirit 
and in truth. Lord, help us to be humble and to yield to the deeper truths of Scripture. If we reject, prove that we don't know you. Help us now, Father, to enjoy the person of Christ, to rest in him, to strive no longer in our works, but to rest in him that we might do good works with immense joy and freedom for the sake of Christ and for the sake of those for whom he died. It's in his name we pray. Amen.